0: From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast.
1: It's been a very busy season for BC Ferries. It's about to come to an end. What do we learn from the summer of struggle? Did we find enough frustration that now we can finally go to our politicians and those in the know to get the ball rolling on what we hope is a true upgrade and maybe even a change to the fleet or maybe even some upgrades to the staff to talk about this and much more. Eric McNeely, president of the B.C. Ferry and Marine Workers Union, kind enough to join me. Eric, good afternoon. Afternoon, Rob. Thanks for the interest. Well, let's talk about it, and we'll start with the one that I think everybody's looking at, and that is staffing. We will talk about the cancellations and just the sheer volume of it before this segment's done. But let's start with staffing, because I know that that's been a real thorn in the side of B.C. Ferries this year. Are there greener, greener pastures ahead? Are there brighter days ahead? Or are we heading to a 2024 that maybe has some of the same earmarks as this year?
0: Well, I, I sure hope we're not heading to another year that looks like this one and last year. Frankly, uh, it's been really challenging for my members, and and well, BC Ferries has done a lot to. Um, Go out and hire people. Uh, we see retention as a challenge and demographics. Frankly, BC Ferries did some significant hiring in the uh, mid 80s uh, in preparations for Expo, and then again the uh, the early 90s when the fast cats came in. And those folks have been getting a year older every year. And uh, that's got us to the point where we're looking at, uh, potentially, in the next five years, up to 25% of our membership uh, will be eligible or potentially retiring. And that's that's a significant amount of people to replace, uh, certainly when we're looking for uh, people with high skill sets and, and high levels of experience. So. Uh, we hope there's a light at the end of the tunnel we're just not sure how how long that tunnel is at this point
1: eric maybe you can walk me through this because i don't assume that it's just like a regular job where i take my application down and the next thing you know i'm working on a ferry there's obviously a process there's a training protocol it's not as if they can just fix this overnight can you walk me through the process of maybe i'm driving around and i'm like you know what i'd work for bc ferries what does that look like and what kind of um commitment would i need to make to finally get one of those jobs
0: yeah, so I think it's it's because we're such a full trade union. It takes uh, different jobs have different requirements. So if you work in IT, those requirements would be different. But you know, typically, I think people are wondering how do you get to work on a vessel at ferries? Even when you think of ferries, you think of the boats. So in order for someone to work on the vessel, the sort of bare minimum that they require is the marine emergency duty. So that's the number of courses that are required, and. Uh, and so that's if you want to, say, work in catering or going into an entry-level position in engineering or DAC. Um, in some cases, you need, may need some more additional education uh, to uh, to come in, so like a bridge watch certification. So some of those can be uh, a couple of weeks or, in some cases, a couple of months. So the costs to become an employee on the vessel to a, a potential employee can range somewhere from about uh, $2,000 to uh and then if, if you're going up to like a deckhand who's certified to work uh, and, and steer the vessel, uh, that's, you know, you're looking at somewhere between uh ten and $12,000 for that education. That's just to get your foot in the door. Uh, so that, yeah, there is some challenges there. And then in the more skilled positions, if you're looking at, you know, a first engineer, uh, a chief officer, a captain, that kind of thing, you know, those are um, folks who've invested substantially in their careers and uh you know it's not something that you get to uh, come off the street uh without any additional training or or experience so you know to to get in the get in the door b c ferries uh in a navigation or engineering position, it's a, a couple thousand dollars to to upwards of ten thousand dollars and then if you're looking at getting into say the catering department on the vessel itself and see if b c ferries is a good fit for you uh there is some uh, training required there. Uh, And then you're also looking at startup costs for an employee. So that that could be, you know, uh, footwear, it could be,
1: I think that's one of the challenges. I mean, not a lot of people right now in this climate financially have that kind of money to go and invest in themselves to try and take a position with BC Ferries. Some of the numbers that came out, and I'm sure you're privy to these, Eric, um, to some of our listeners that don't know, more than 1,100 cancellations this fiscal year were due to staff shortages. Walk me through this, Eric, just so that I can understand, so that I don't just kind of paint this with one broad stroke brush. When you have to cancel, what is it that's missing? I mean, it, it can't just be a cook in the kitchen. Like, what kind of staff are missing for you to have to cancel a, a, a sailing?
0: Yeah, so it's different types of staff, and then quantities as well. Mm. So I would say generally BC Ferries, the sort of the, the system runs on overtime. There's always someone uh, working on overtime. Uh, where the real uh, functional uh, crisis points are, if you will, for a staff member missing, is in those uh, fairly highly skilled positions. So in engineering, in navigation. But uh, so those ones will, if you don't have a chief engineer or first engineer, you know, the vessel's not going to sail. If you don't have a captain or a chief officer, the vessel won't sail. And there are um, constraints within BC Ferry's employment structure where they don't have a lot of relief in some of those, those higher um, ticketed positions. That being said, if you're missing a number of people from, say, the catering department, the vessel won't sail either because there's a... A minimum safe manning level that's required by Transport Canada and that's the the purpose of all the crew on board the vessels to ensure that In the unlikely event of emergency the passengers and crew will be able to evacuate the vessel um, In a safe and quick manner and the the amount the minimum amount of people has been determined by uh, Transport Canada and I think those sailing cancellations uh it's sort of one piece of the picture what you may not see within those numbers as well is when bc ferries has to reduce their licenses and what i mean by that is if you have a high level of crew load, so there's uh, three types of licenses a b c so c license is punctually where you're you have the absolute minimum of crew but you can still move around as you go up to b and a uh you have more crew on board that means you can bring more travelers or more passengers aboard so what you may not see and this is not reflecting those sailing cancellation numbers the times when ferries have had to go from an A license to a B license or a C license, and what that could mean is, instead of say a coastal Renaissance carrying 1,600 people, it's now able to carry 900 people. And those would be scenarios where you may see vehicle decks that aren't full or cafeterias that aren't full because the um, crew complement is such that they can't take the full capacity of the vessel because they don't have the full crew. Hmm. And so that's not reflected there, but it does have a signi- it does and can have a significant impact. On the traveling public, if you're waiting at Horseshoe Bay up the hill where there's no real washrooms, you know, you may be thinking, well, I'm going to get on this boat, and then it turns out uh, you don't because the license has been reduced because they're missing two or three people from catering and maybe a person from the deck department. The vessel still goes. It's not been canceled, but it has reduced capacity, and that could mean more people are waiting longer.
1: It's it's great insight. Eric, I, I could talk to you for an hour, but uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to stop here. But thank you for the depth, uh, the in-depth conversation. We're going to talk about it on the other side. Thanks for your time this afternoon, Eric. Appreciate it, Rob. Have a good day. Interesting time as we get ready for school. The preparation of adolescents for the change back to early mornings, earlier bedtimes, improving bedtime routines. Hopefully, we can get those kids to settle down very early. And recommended bedtimes for children. A lot to get into. So I wanted to talk about this with Wendy Hall, Professor Emeritus at the School of Nursing at UBC. Wendy, good afternoon.
2: Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Well,
1: it's my pleasure. And uh, I'm very fortunate. Both of my kids are through high school. So now if they want to sleep late, it's up to them. If they want to miss work, it's on them. But for kids, habits are... Really tough to break after several weeks of being on summer vacation, getting to sleep in a little bit. So let's talk about how we can start to make these adjustments as parents. What are some of the ABCs of doing such a thing?
2: That's a great question, Rob. It's really important to try and reinstate bedtime routines and school-based bedtimes as early as you can before they go back. You don't want to have them the night before school suddenly have to go to bed at 10 o'clock when they've been going to bed at one o'clock in the morning. That's not going to go well.
1: (laughs) Well, I can say the biggest challenge that I faced was taking the phone out of my daughter and son's hands as they were getting ready for bed, because nothing's worse than putting your kid to bed at a certain time and then checking in on them 10, 15 minutes later and seeing their face glowing from the screen of their phone. Um, Are there things that parents can do in advance to try and wean their kids off of their media devices?
2: Yeah, that's a great uh, point too. Yes, um, what I often recommend families do is shut everything down about an hour or two if you can manage it before bed and actually have the parents' role model putting their cell phones in a pod uh, where they charge them for the night and everybody in the family puts their cell phones in that pod and none of the family members take their cell phones into their bedrooms with them.
1: Yeah, you know, it's one of those things easier said than done because – I have noticed this with my, um, my goddaughter who's, you know, still young enough that she's enamored by whatever, you know, cartoon you put on an iPad. But you get used to this because a parent will use a social device as almost a crutch, a way to keep their kids quiet. Now all of a sudden you got that cranky kid ready for bed and it's like, oh, okay, we'll let him just watch one thing. And it's almost as tough a habit for a parent to break as it is for the kid, no?
2: No, totally. I hear you. And when I'm talking with... Nursing students at UBC they often say that they they struggle with this very same thing, but what we have to remember is that children and and this peaks in late adolescence, their pupils are much more reactive um, to uh, light their pupil diameter is larger than ours are and so when they're exposed to that blue light that really interferes with their ability to secrete melatonin and that's the hormone that tells you you're getting drowsy and it's getting to be ready to time to go to bed so that's it's really important to keep them away from that blue light
1: so we take away the blue light that's one check in the check boxes I remember when I was a kid, my mom would always read to me until I fell asleep. Is that still a tried, tested, and a true thing, or has that gone the way of the dodo bird?
2: Well, you know, the the research shows that hard copy reading is absolutely wonderful for falling asleep. And if a parent can read to a child, that is fabulous. But even if a child's reading on their own, like an adolescent, a hard copy book is ideal for helping them feel drowsy and getting ready for sleep.
1: Professor Hall, let me ask you this, because I always think to myself, what is the optimal amount of sleep? Everybody says, oh, if you get eight hours, you're going to have yourself a great day. But realistically, in today's day and age, uh, getting eight hours as a parent is almost impossible. But for a child, especially one that's maybe going into high school where they're going to be using that brain all day long, what is the right number or is there a right number?
2: Well, there's a recommended range, and we all know that children vary in terms of their need for sleep. Just like adults vary in terms of the needs for sleep, but we know that adolescents generally don't get enough sleep because their circadian rhythms start to switch as they go into puberty and so it they end up feeling tired later and so they often fight bed but they should be absolutely getting somewhere between eight and ten hours of sleep per night and i know parents are going to roll their eyes at that (laughs) but there's a lot of information out there that indicates that adolescents who don't get enough sleep are more likely to use tobacco they're more likely to use substances and if they're getting less than five hours of sleep they're more likely to um, Join gigs. So this is not a minor thing.
1: Wow. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I'll be first to say it. The second you said 8 to 10, I too rolled my eyes. Yeah. But I, I guess the, the final question I have for you on this, I think it's a fantastic topic, by the way. Okay, so my kid goes to bed at a decent hour, but man, they're just the worst to wake up in the morning. What can I do early in the morning to help stimulate my child to get them out of bed and get them motivated for the day after, you know, be it 10 hours of sleep or 5?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, having activities first thing in the morning that really help them get become alert is really good. So, you know, a shower or um, some quick, if they're not showering every day, just a quick face wash um, can really help stimulate them. Uh, some good breakfast is amazing. I know it's really hard for parents in right now with uh, the cost of living and all the things that are going on as, as far as inflation is concerned. But getting a good breakfast into a child at the beginning of the day is one of the best things you can do for them. And, you know, tr- you know, trying to avoid um, heavy, uh, high in sugar and carbohydrates breakfast because those actually are not good for children's sleep and, and interfere with sleep.
1: Huh. Gosh, this is a great conversation. I appreciate your time. We're going to chew on this in the next hour. But thank you for the information. And more than anything, thank you for your time today, Professor Hall.
2: Well, thanks for asking me, Rob. You take care.
1: Rob Fain for Jill. Good afternoon. I know what you're thinking. Man, when is that gas going to go back down beneath $2? (laughs) I remember when I first moved to Vancouver back in 1994. I could swear it was in the 30s, as in 30 cents. Times have changed, right? But anyways, one of the things that I think we we'll have to get into is why is our dollar so little when it comes to filling up our tank? It cost me about $80, $85 the other day, and I got about 80% of my gas tank filled. And I thought, that's it. That's all I got. So that's it. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Let's get it from somebody in the know when it comes to why our gas prices are soaring. Dan Batigue, president of Canadian for Affordable Energy, joins me. Dan, good afternoon. Good afternoon.
3: Yes, unless you're uh, having to go to a gas station.
1: Well yeah, then it's a mediocre afternoon at best. But why are <laughs> exactly. we dealing with um you know, above two dollars and is it ever gonna go back down or is this the new norm?
3: I, I don't think it's gonna go below uh two dollars as an average. I think you might see days it might hit a dollar ninety, maybe a dollar eighty five, but just as easily you could hit two fifteen, two twenty. And that's really because uh we're product and price takers here in the Lower Mainland, Vancouver. And, of course, uh, with, uh, with reliance on uh, what is, of course, the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline that's heavily subscribed, the existing one, um, demand being very strong and robust on the West Coast, and, of course, uh, all sorts of volatility that includes, and you, may, you made reference to your dollar, the Canadian dollar. <laughs> it's just yeah. not responding to the therapy like it did, well, when you got here to Vancouver. You know, Canadian dollar uh, when oil was 80, 90, dollars a barrel would be on par with US greenback. And that's critical because that adds another 20, 30 cents a liter. And then, of course, uh, hey, you know, let's talk about it. That T word, taxes, you got the highest uh, jurisdiction for taxes on fuel anywhere in North America. So go figure.
1: Well, Dan, I think whenever we talk about gas prices, the first thing that I'll see in the inbox that pipes up is the carbon tax. And right wow. now, that's obviously a problem. Is there any relief in sight, Dan?
3: I don't think so. Um look, the two carbon taxes, one's called a BC carbon uh, BC low fuel uh, carbon fuel standard, uh, LC, LC, BCL, uh LCFS, what a what a what an acronym. Uh that's about 16 cents, 16.5 cents a liter if you consider carbon credits are about $450. Now I didn't say that for the general public, I said that for the pointy heads who uh, often say, oh, it's only three or four cents a litre. No, it's 16. And the numbers are pretty clear. Then you, of course, have 14.31 cents a litre, which is the second carbon tax. But then, you know, let's not just stop there. You've got uh, the transit tax, the uh, TransLink tax, 18.5 and uh, BC 6.75, another 1.75 cents a litre. It all adds up to about 78, 79 cents a litre when you're paying 212.9
1: which is pretty significant. Hey, let me ask you something, Dan. Why are we so reliant on foreign refineries?
3: We had a wave of consolidation back in the 1990s, which I and others before me had uh, uh, had, had opposed. Uh, and the consolidation saw refineries shut down, uh, terminals closed down. Uh, we also saw pretty significant uh, removal of independent gas retailers who were being done in by... Uh, an old company called uh, I'm trying to think of the name, Ar- Arco. Uh, Arco came in, wanted to be the lowest price there. They wiped off a lot of independents and uh, their terminals and their their uh, infrastructure, and so you create a situation where uh, wholesale and retail prices were always going to be much higher with fewer competitors. Of course, the bigger issue is you know with uh, growing the population in Vancouver, um, you know very little in the way of an increase in the existing and only refinery you have in Vancouver, the Parkland refinery. At fifty, sixty thousand barrels, no more than that a day. Vancouver's needs are close to one hundred and fifty thousand barrels a day, of fuel, diesel, gasoline. Uh, so you know you're you're short. You rely on your neighbors, or you rely on the Trans Mountain Pipeline to get more product in from uh, from from Edmonton. But we often know that that is uh, that's oversubscribed. As I mentioned earlier, it's uh, it's it's jammed, packed with uh, some days diesel, some days gasoline, other days oil. So all these things really add up to uh, the proverbial, you know, uh, <laughs> perfect storm for consumers in Vancouver. And of course, uh, with higher taxes on fuel, it just makes, uh, things that much more difficult.
1: You think of other pipelines that are on their way to being done. And a lot of people say, okay, well, that will be some reprieve, but in actuality, is that going to be the reprieve that we need? Or are we going to just be shipping that elsewhere, trying to make some money on the, uh, other side of the ocean?
3: Yeah. Well, look, if, um Canada has the third largest reserves of oil in the world. Um, Russia is number eight, and it's got Europe where it wants. Um, if you have the ability to get product to market, you can bring down the overall price of oil. The second factor, and it's a big one, uh, is the Canadian dollar. Um, if it takes 136 pennies to buy a U.S. dollar, and every commodity we consume in Canada, whether it's made here or not, like gasoline or diesel, uh, you know, you're know you adding... Tw- the weakness of the Canadian dollar is about... Uh, adds about 26, 27 cents to a liter of gasoline. So, you know, if if in a perfect world, everything would be fine. No one would have any problems. You know, you get rid of the BC low carbon fuel tax, you get rid of the federal and provincial carbon tax. There's, you know, right off the top, there's 32 cents there. Another 26 for your uh, Canadian dollar because we're building pipelines again. The private sector has no trouble doing it rather than government going in and Messing it all up and costing us a whole pile of money, you know that. That to me would, uh, would see prices a lot closer to a buck fifty, buck sixty in Vancouver, not what you're paying today, which is two twelve. But by the way, I don't want to always be negative, And everyone says, "Oh, it's McTaggart, it's uh, the voice of doom coming on again." <laughs> Listen, <laughs> Rob, I want to give people a bit of hope, a tiny bit of hope, and it's probably worth uh, more than a you know a cup a cup of coffee. Uh, I was speaking to Janet Brown a little earlier today, your colleague, mm-hmm. uh, and she, uh, she and I go back on this. I have uh, confirmed with her that in fact uh, gas prices will drop. Uh, drum roll, please, on Wednesday, eight cents a liter. So the two twelve point nine or whatever you think you're paying today will drop eight cents a liter. So we no more than two or four point nine at most gas stations if you can just wait say another forty hours uh, before filling up.
1: That's pretty significant. Eight per liter is okay by me. I appreciate that. See, <laughs> let, let's finish on a high there, Dan. That's good there stuff. There you go. For it. once. Oh my goodness. What a change. <laughs> I love this new Dan McKay. Yeah, I was going to say we'll <laughs> clip this segment for future reference. Dan, thank you for the time today. I do appreciate all of the insight that you bring to the table, be it good, bad, or ugly. Thank you again, Dan. I really appreciate this. Thanks again, Rob. No Bye problem. Then.